Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When cornered, Bart Simpson employed a three-part defense. One, I didn't do it. Two, nobody saw me. Three, you can't prove anything. It's not one any of us has ever used, right? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence with this sermon entitled Rooted in Repentance, which covers 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 51, 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10, and Romans chapter 2 verse 4. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We started a series last week parlaying off of this Rooted to Flourish initiative called Rooted, a Lifestyle of Radical Dependence. And I shared with you guys how I, I longed for Perimeter to be a church that prays. We don't want to be a church that plays church that we have learned over the years, perhaps, maybe. Um, this is common to a lot of churches that have been successful. We, we know how to press the right buttons. We know how to, uh, to, to do the right things in order for church to quote unquote work. But we don't want to do that. We want to be a church that prays and says, God, would you do what only you can do? And would you do it for your glory? Not for the glory of perimeter, but would you cause this place and more than the place, obviously the people, your people here to flourish so that the kingdom of God would come to bear in our families, in our city, and then in all the various places throughout the world that we touch globally. We're, we're asking God to bring the flourishing of his kingdom in us and through us. And so with that, we talked about how I, I shared with you guys how uh, there are seven roots, seven roots that need to be nourished, that need to be watered, that need to be healthy in order for us to flourish. And this is not an exhaustive list. These seven that I'm walking through with you, we started last week with prayer. We're hitting this week with repentance. It's not exhaustive. There could really be probably, who knows, 30, 40, 50 roots that we could talk about, but I don't think you want a series that long. Um, but what we're doing is we're talking about the seven that the Lord has most pressed on my heart right now, all kind of under the greenhouse, if you will, of God's word. That God's word is the fuel for these seven roots. And so today we'll, we'll jump into repentance. Before we do, let me pray for us and ask God to bless our time. Father, thank you for the opportunity we get each week to, to gather this is a holy thing, something that you commanded, something that you created for your people to gather in corporate worship to encourage one another as we worship the true living God. And so, Lord, we want to position ourselves before you this morning in a, in a posture of radical dependence, depending upon you, knowing that that you're our hope and our salvation. You're our refuge. You're our strong tower. It's in you that we find our rest. So would you speak to us this morning? Would you teach us your heart about repentance? Holy Spirit, move among us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. You ever done something just blatantly obvious that you did it, perhaps even caught red-handed, but you deny it. 
You say, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Even so much that you would defend yourself. You would go to great lengths to defend yourself. And then maybe perhaps at, at a certain point when you have um, know that you can't get out of it, that yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I've done this thing. Uh, you give a, a, an apology that is about as sincere as a happy birthday post on Facebook. <laughs> Not that mine aren't sincere. Mine are always sincere. I'm sorry, okay, but it's more of I'm sorry I got caught, not I'm sorry that I've done what I did, that I know hurt you or whatever it may be. Is this not the story? This, is this not the reality of parenting, by the way? There have been countless number of times where I will watch one of my children do something right in front of my eyes, and when I say, hey, wait, hey no, no, don't do that. What, what are you doing? I didn't do that. What? I, I just watch you with my own eyes. I didn't, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. How can you deny something that's so clearly that you did and then defend yourself over and over and over again and even blame a sibling when the sibling wasn't in the room? And you, and you start to worry as a parent. You're like, what's wrong with my child's heart? And it's usually, if you're a follower of Christ, about that time that the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear the same thing that's wrong with yours. Because we do the same thing. We struggle. We are a people who struggle so deeply with seeing our sin, with calling it sin, with confessing it, and then turning from it. It's what the Bible calls repentance. And we struggle so much with being able to, to confess it, own it, say yes. This is what I've done. The reason we struggle so much with it is because it's the, uh, it's the residue, the ever-present residue of our sin nature that is so prevalent within our hearts. And what happens with that residue is that we become a people naturally left unto ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus, you now have two natures. You are still in that sin nature, but you are warring against that sin nature with the new nature of Christ in you, the Holy Spirit's nature within you. And so you're in this in between, constantly fighting, constantly at war, but this sin residue, this residue of Adam, if you will, is still there and still so prevalent. And what it's rooted in, what a lack of repentance is rooted in, is rooted in self-protection and pride. That, that's how we operate apart from the grace of Christ and the power of Christ at work within us. We, we will secure our feet deeply in the soil of self-protection and pride, doing whatever we can to say, it's not that bad. I'm not that bad. I, I wouldn't do something like that. But by God's grace, what he calls us to be is to be a people who are able to, in humility, look within ourselves and to see the depths of our heart, not so that we would wallow in sin and condemn ourselves, but so that we would run to him all the more and repent and say, oh, God, would you change me bit by bit, step by step, day by day? And may I not be so prideful to say that that can't be me. There's no way that that's something I would do. 
Repentance is a core root in the life of a flourishing Christian. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you two examples biblically where we see one example is false repentance. We see very clearly what repentance is not, but how it often seems to what we might say, oh, that's repentance, but it's really not. And then we'll look at another biblical example of what genuine repentance looks like. What does it look like to be repentant, to, to turn from our sin, to own it, to call it, turn from it? First one is in uh, 1 Samuel 15. Both of these accounts that I'm going to give you are those that if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you're, you're probably familiar with these stories. You're not going to be surprised as to where we're going this morning. And so don't let the familiarity of it cause you to disengage because we can always learn over and over again, even from familiar stories, what God has for us to learn in his word. First Samuel 15, let me give you a little bit of a context real quick of what's going on. God's people, the Israelites, have been asking God for a long time now for a king, for a human king, an earthly king. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. He's led them through the wilderness. There have been 400 years of them being uh, not having a king, but having judges who rule over them. And they're looking at all the nations around them. They're looking at all the neighboring people around them and say, we want a king just like they do. And God is offended by that because he says, I'm your king. Am I not enough? And they basically keep saying over and over again, no, you're not enough. We want what they have. And so God eventually gives them what they want. And he gives them a king. And the first king of Israel is this guy named Saul. God in his wisdom and all that he knows, obviously, his Omniscience, he knows that, man, when I give you what you want, it's not going to be what you expect. It's always going to disappoint. And Saul certainly disappointed. Saul was a man who was deeply rooted in self-protection and pride. Saul lived for Saul's glory. And we see this in 1 Samuel 15. By God's grace, Saul has had some success the kingdom of Israel is, is expanding because of God's power through Saul, even though Saul is not a godly man. And we get to this juncture in 1 Samuel 15 where God gives Saul an incredibly difficult command. Let's read it. He says this, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 3. He tells Saul, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whew. We struggle. In, in, in Saul's defense, this is an incredibly hard command, right? The God of the universe is saying, wipe these people and everything that they own, own out. We struggle with this because we struggle with a God who would be so full of wrath. We have to remember, let me just make this side comment. This is, could be another sermon for another day and fill the whole morning for us. But just know this, we have to remember that we serve a God who is fully and completely perfect in every way and in all of his attributes, he is worthy of our praise and we are quick to give him praise for his attribute of love. God is love. He's 100% love. Yes, 
fully and completely and we say, praise you, God. And he's gracious and he's merciful and he's patient and he's kind and he's long-suffering. And we worship him for all those things, but we often forget that in the same way, he is a God of wrath. He is a God of justice. He is a jealous God. He is almighty God. Clouds and thick darkness surround his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne, as Psalm 98 says. And he is just as worthy of our praise for his wrath because here's the thing. Here's what happened. The Amalekites were a group of people, a nation, who when God was leading his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, the Amalekites dealt ruthlessly with God's people. God is a jealous God, and he didn't forget, and now he is bringing vengeance back upon them. And here's what I want you to understand. What the Amalekites are getting from the hand of God is what every human deserves. The wrath of God upon sin. And this is hard for us to wrestle with a God who would would be that. But he says the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, where Jimmy just quoted from earlier, if you go back to Ephesians 2, the reason verse 4 is so beautiful, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he has loved us, is because of verse 3, which says, we are by nature children of what? Wrath. Because if God is going to be faithful in his justice, if he's going to be faithful in his righteousness, he must punish sin. And so in this story, We have to see ourselves even in the Amalekites, that God is pouring out his wrath on sin, and but for the grace of God, but for Jesus, there we are also. And so God gives this incredibly difficult command to Saul. And watch what happens. Verses seven through nine, I'm just gonna skip and give you the highlights of this chapter. It says, and Saul defeated the Amalekites, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh Uh-oh. There's our first problem. He's not obeying. God said everyone to be destroyed. And Saul devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And so God brings the prophet Samuel as his mouthpiece to Saul to say, okay, what's going on here? So God visits Samuel and he says, Saul did not obey me. And Samuel is filled with anger and rage that the king of Israel would not obey God's commands. And so he then comes to Saul. And as he's coming to Saul, verse 13, uh, Samuel doesn't even say a word. And Saul says something. He says this, blessed be to you, uh, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul knows why he's coming. Before he even gets there, he's sucking up to him. Blessed be you, Samuel. You're of the Lord. By the way, in case you're wondering, I did obey the command. My teenager has this phrase right now where he says, really, though? Did you really? And that's kind of Samuel's response here. 
Samuel says, and before I read this, I want you to, it is so good, by the way, to when you're reading scripture, to remember this is not two-dimensional, made-up conversation. This is real life, 3D, real people, history, real emotions, real personalities, real anger, real sarcasm. This conversation really happened, and Samuel responds with anger and with sarcasm. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen that I hear? That's his version of a 16-year-old's, really? Did you really do that, that's all? Then what is all this that I hear? I'm supposed to be hearing silence. Saul stands his ground, verse 14. Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. There is so much in this sentence that beckons us back to Genesis 3. Does this sound familiar? It it wasn't me. It was the people. They did it. I can't control them. Your issue's not with me. Go deal with them, Samuel. Is this not exactly what Adam did? This is the residue of the Adamic nature within all of us. One of the first evidences and implications of sin in our life is to not own sin and then not just own it, but to blame it and put it on someone else. God is looking for Adam in the cool of of the day. He's walking in the garden. Why isn't he looking for Eve, by the way? She's the one who ate of the fruit. Go back to Genesis 2. He gave the command to Adam. And he says, what is this that you have done? And Adam says, the woman that you gave me. He blames God and her. (laughs) This is the nature of sin within us, and that's what Saul's doing. He's saying, look, it's not me. It's the people. And then look what he does. He ratchets it up even more. The end of verse 14, he says, they're the ones who took the best of the sheep and the oxen. Why? It's a sacrifice to the Lord. This is spiritual, Samuel. Don't you get it? I am really, really godly. And I didn't obey God so that we could worship. By the way, false repentance is often wrapped up in spiritual garb. In a whole host of religiosity. People who are so prideful and rooted in self-protection will often cloak it in church language. And what they're really saying is this, your issue's not with me, I would never do that, I'm gonna go worship. That's not spiritual at all, that's not godly at all. What's spiritual and godly is to say, you're right. I didn't do what pleases the Lord, would you forgive me? Samuel continues on, why then, verse 19, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul, man, give him credit. He is not budging. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag to the king of, uh, the king of Amalek, which, by the way, God didn't command him to do that in the first place. He's saying, I did it, but that wasn't the command. I have... Uh, devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But again, it was the people. The people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He is just, he's not gonna budge. 
And if you read in chapter 15, it's at this point that Samuel drops the hammer. And he says, Saul, do you not get it? Do you think God is concerned with your fake worship when your heart is so far from him? Do you think God cares about sacrifice? Saul, wake up. It's not about your silly sacrifice. It's about your heart. And when Saul sees the anger of Samuel and he hears the voice of the Lord through him, he finally begins to get it kind of. He says in verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And here's the heart motive that's starting to come out because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So there is truth in that he, he, he's blaming the people. They're the ones that wanted to keep the sheep and the oxen and all that. But he's the king. And he didn't lead. Furthermore, the people didn't want to keep Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Saul did. Why? Because when you bring a conquered king back to your people, who gets the glory? Your king does. Saul gets the glory. In fact, in chapter 15, it says that he had already erected a monument to himself. He says, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And you think, okay, thank you, Saul. I think you're starting to get what's happened here, the magnitude of what's going on in your heart. And then Saul just keeps talking. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned. Would you stop talking there, Saul? Just stop. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. His heart has not changed. There has been no repentance. There is no turning from sin. His God is the worship of his people to himself, not to God. And the only reason he's saying his, he is sorry and that I have sinned is because he's sorry he got caught. There is no repentance. Listen to this. False repentance looks spiritual many times, but it's anchored in prideful self-protection and it's void of heart transformation. Now, the temptation you're facing right now is you're thinking about all the people in your life that this describes. We're thinking about, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this and so-and-so needs to hear this and oh my goodness, you're describing so-and-so. And the call of God upon you right now is to open your ears to how is this true of me, first and foremost. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, before you remove the log from someone else's eye, the, the speck from someone else's eye, remove the log in your own. How do we posture ourselves in a place of radical dependence before the Lord to say, God, help me to be someone who sees my sin, who calls it sin, who confesses it, and who turns from it long before I look into the eyes of someone else. Genuine repentance. 
If you're gonna go to a passage in scripture, there's many of them that give us a biblical understanding of repentance. You have to start in Psalm 51 and it, it fits perfectly with the story that we're already in. Because in, in 1 Samuel 15, it, I didn't read it to you, but it was that very moment when Saul was unrepentant that God said to Saul through Samuel, the kingdom is now taken away from you. You are no longer gonna be king. And I'm gonna raise up someone else who will be a godly king. And so he raises up David, obscure little afterthought shepherd boy David. And David, as the scriptures describe him, is a man after God's own heart. God raises him up and blesses the kingdom tremendously through David. And David is, is one who wrote so much of the Psalms to where we begin to see his heart as a leader, as a king. But before we go uh, idolizing David, we are reminded that he is a sinner just like we are, deeply in need of grace. Because David did something even worse than Saul. He got full of himself and he got consumed with pride and self-protection, so much so that when his people are out in war, he didn't go with them. When he was supposed to be with his men, he was at home lounging and lusting. And it led him to adultery and it led him to murder. And his heart had become so calloused, he didn't even feel conviction over it until God sent a prophet. Just like he had sent Samuel to Saul, he now sends Nathan to David. And Nathan tells him a parable that is basically the story of what's, what David had just done to Uriah and killing Uriah. And David is incensed and says, bring me this person. And Nathan says, it's you. And here's where the difference in the two stories begins. Because Saul stood his ground and he said, I didn't do it, I have obeyed and it wasn't my fault, it was these other people's thought, uh, faults and, and I'm just gonna keep being the pseudo godly person that I think I am. And David doesn't stand on any ground other than the mercy of God. Psalm 51 is what David wrote his prayer of repentance after this ordeal, after his sin with Bathsheba. First four verses say this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's saying, forgive me, oh God, you, you are justified in your anger towards me. But you know what David's doing right here? And this is, I'm gonna give you three things that repentance involves, biblical, genuine repentance. You know what David's doing right here? David is admitting he's wrong. That's the first step in repentance, an, admit, an admittance of wrong. He's just simply saying, yes, this is true of me. 
Yes, I was wrong. I keep saying it over and over again, but I want you to keep hearing it. The first step in the repentant process is to see your sin and call it sin. Don't try to justify it as something else, but say, yes, this is true. That's me. That's my struggle. And yeah. The second thing, though, is this, that that, uh, repentance involves is an experience of remorse. Remorse is different than guilt. Guilt leads us to self-pity. And guilt leads us ultimately to to, woe is me. That's where guilt guilt leaves. But godly remorse actually doesn't lead to self-pity. Godly remorse actually leads us to self-examination. So that as we see our sin and we, we call it sin, we run to God to say, oh God, forgive me. Godly remorse says, yes, woe is me, but praise be to God who rescues me from this body of death. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Listen to what David says in verse five. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's he's remorseful over even the reality of sin in our lives, the fact that we're born into sin, sin because of the sin nature that we inherited. And so he's, remorse, he's remorseful over that. But then if you go back and you read some of the other Psalms that David wrote when he was repenting, Psalm 31.10 says this, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Again, in the next Psalm, Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up is by the heat of the summer. Some of you hear these words and read them and go, yes, that's what I'm experiencing. The heaviness of sin. The ways in which I feel as though my bones are wasting away because of the sin that is within me and I'm not repenting of it. I'm not dealing with it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not calling it. I'm not confessing it. And sin is heavy upon us, and this is what David felt. But then in all of these Psalms, he then comes behind that and he says, but then I confess my sin to the Lord. And my summation is what happens next in these Psalms is he says, then I confess my sin to the Lord, and the Lord began to heal my heart. 2 Corinthians 7 says it this way, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief or remorse produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Thirdly, repentance involves a request of renewal. Just confessing our sin is not repentance. Repentance ends and asking God to change us and turning from that sin. Saying, oh God, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to keep running to these things that will always lead me into despair. I want to run to you, and would you forgive me, and would you change me? Look what, look what David says, starting in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. 
Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see what David's doing here? He's saying, what I felt so heavy under sin and my bones were wasting away. Would you restore that? Would you renew that? Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And here's the plea. Here's the request for renewal. Don't miss it in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, renew, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There's a request, a plea for renewal. Genuine repentance, as opposed to false repentance, is spiritual. It doesn't just look spiritual, it is spiritual, and it's anchored in humility, in radical dependence on the Lord, and in heart transformation. Look what David goes on to say in Psalm 51. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we've seen a biblical example of false repentance We've seen a biblical example of genuine repentance. But let me speak to this quickly here. What motivates repentance? What is it that really moves us to have a heart to say, God, I want to be someone who repentance marks my life? A healthy root in the heart of a flourishing Christian. What is it that fuels that? Well, the scriptures tell us in Romans 2, chapter 4, it says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? It's the kindness of the Lord. We presume upon that kindness far too often, and that's something to confess and say, God, forgive me. But what motivates repentance is the richness of the kindness of the Lord through Jesus. And so what's anchored, if you will, uh, in, in motivation of our repentance is the cross. That we are a people who continually look to what God has done in his kindness to us through Jesus. That he has redeemed us from this wretched body of death, as Romans 7 says. That he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. That he has called us sons and daughters of the king when we were slaves to sin. And that he has poured out every spiritual blessing upon us when we deserve what the Amalekites got. And the more we recall that, the more we remember that, the more we become a people who see our sin, call it sin, confess it, and turn from it. We become a people who repent. And if you're not a person who is repenting regularly, then we connect the dots back to we're probably not a, per, a, a people who are recalling the cross regularly and remembering the kindness of the Lord because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But... Shouldn't we repent less the more we walk with Jesus? We're becoming more and more like Jesus, right? So shouldn't there be less repentance? I want you to look at this real quickly. This is a diagram that I've used for years and years and years. Uh, it was first, I first came across it in a, in a study. Jack Miller, Pastor Jack Miller came up with this. I want to give him credit. 
But I want you to, to, what I want you to see here is this. Imagine that everything above the timeline is, is awareness of God's holiness. Awareness of his holiness, his glory, his grandeur, his perfection. Everything below the timeline is uh, our awareness of our sin, our awareness of our lack of holiness. And so you see there the dotted line that signifies when we are converted, when you first believe upon Christ. And what happens in that time frame is God is barely opening the eyes of our hearts to see the holiness of God represented by above the line and the sinfulness sinfulness of my own heart represented by what's below the line. And the gap between the two is covered by the work of Jesus represented by the cross. And when I first become a believer, God's not going to throw it wide open because we wouldn't be able to handle what we would begin to take in of his holiness and our sin. And so he graciously, slowly over time, over the course of following him, opens our eyes more and more to his holiness and to our sin. And as that gets wider and wider and wider, what gets bigger? The gap between how holy God is and my awareness of how unholy I am, I see Jesus all the more. I see the cross getting bigger and bigger, and I stand in a place not of, oh my goodness, look how godly I am, but I stand in a place of, oh my goodness, look how great he is, that he would rescue me. And and by God's grace, I'm not struggling with some of the sins that I struggled with when I was 20. But he's over time opened my eyes to a whole new set of sins year by year, day by day, month by month that I didn't see back then, but he's showing me now. So that by the time when I'm 80, I'm seeing little crevices in my heart that I never saw before. And I'm saying, oh God, forgive me. Make me more like you. Make me more like Jesus, the cross Oh my goodness, the cross of what he covered. I see it so much more now than I ever did. Jesus, you are beautiful. That's what growth in Christ looks like. Far too often we have positioned people up in the church who we perceive as people who always get it right. And we say, how godly are they? We might be getting that wrong. The people who are open and honest about their sin and say, God, this is why I need Jesus so much. I don't want to sin. I'm not glorifying sin, but this is who I am. You need to see how much I need Jesus. That's godliness. And then we lock arms together in community and we run to Christ together, asking him to change us. We are asking God for a lot of things, In this season of prayer, we're asking him to come and do what only he can do. We're asking him to redeem and restore marriages that are broken. We're asking him to bring home wayward children. We're asking him to to break addictions. We're asking him to to do a work in and through this body of believers that spills over into the community and the city around us. We're asking him to to, to do things as big and as uh, seemingly unbelievable as to to end human trafficking in Atlanta, to break corrupt systems, to do what it looks like when we say, and, and when God tells us, when Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that would actually begin to happen in innumerable ways through this body. But I'll tell you this, those things will not happen if we are not first a people who are rooted in prayer and repentance.
a people who are crying out with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, would you do that? Would you create in us a clean heart? Would you renew a right spirit within each one of us? Would you show us our sin, not so that we would wallow and self-condemn, but so that we would see the magnitude of your cross, Jesus, all the more. And be amazed at what you have rescued us from and what you are continuing to rescue us from. And Lord, we do pray that you would come and do what only you can do in and through Perimeter Church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.